this is such an interesting time because we are becoming distributed in our technology. We're becoming distributed as humans even more and more. We're becoming global and our tech is becoming global. This is SaaS Scaled, the podcast where data meets action with host Armand Schrocki. Each week, Armin will be sitting down with CEOs and industry leaders from the technology sector, giving you the insight to innovate without reinventing the wheel. They'll discuss challenges, best practices, and how to identify the right metrics. So if you want to get to market faster and in a way that matters, then subscribe and join us every week as we discuss SaaS scale. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of SaaS Scaled. I'm pleased to have Jim Walker with us today, and he's the principal product evangelist at Cockroach Labs. Welcome, Jim, to the show. Thank you for having me, Armin. I'm excited for our conversation. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Sure. As you stated, you know, my title is a principal product evangelist. It's a Man, it's a three-word title. I've never had a three-word title before. It's it's a new one for me, honestly. But you know, my my background is how I how I got to become this. My friends call me a preacher. Funny enough, as a little kid, I was into computers. I was into programming. I loved it. I I went to college for that computer engineering degree. I coded professionally for almost eight years. Uh, I loved it. But but honestly, I was the person who was who was always chosen from the development team to go explain how things work to salespeople or to customers or that sort of stuff. So I gravitated towards the the product marketing side of the function in, in tech companies. That is kind of that role that that sits between technology and, and humans, honestly, to help kind of explain these things. So I've been a product marketer for about, I guess it's about 20 years now. My life has been spent in emerging startups and emerging tech. I have been a participant in helping create different categories data loss prevention, master data management, uh, Hadoop, Kubernetes, and, and now with this kind of you know distributed SQL. Uh, so I love really kind of early stage technology, um, getting deep into it, understanding it, and then finding a way to, to describe it to people so that they can understand that very well. And, and that's, a, that's a product marketing function. But you know, I think in this role today, I, I'm out there doing it at scale like a preacher. I'm an, I'm an evangelist now, so. <laughs> We had a quick talk before, and you explained to me a, in a very concise way, actually, what the difference between product evangelist and someone who sells the product is. And in this case, it is very different. It's not selling the product. How did you describe it? That was a really nice short description. I don't know where that came from, Armin. Like you inspired me. You you sell products, but you 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 evangelize belief systems, and I. It's right. It, it's actually it, it works because you know I think. You know, a product has value and all these different things, but belief systems, like you have to believe that to actually get others to believe it. Like no matter what it is, like the best preacher in the world believes what they're talking about. And I think that's a different level. Now, you know, at this company where I'm at today, you know, Cockroach Labs, I, you know, I, I have never believed in a technology 
or a market or a group of people ever in my career, in the culmination of years and years of doing this, of decades, I guess. For me to to go out and be a preacher or an evangelist for, for this particular company and, and this movement that's going on as, as things kind of move to the cloud, as uh, you know, as as people kind of uh, adopt software in a different way, you know, this like this whole SaaS, you know, podcast. Like, I'm a believer in it. I have a picture of what the future is. I have an idea what three to five to ten years looks like. And and for me, yeah, I, I'm more of an evangelist now, I think, than a than a product marketer because it's it's definitely a, it's you're helping people kind of get to that through that paradigm shift. How do I get beyond that? And, that's a belief system. So yeah, you, you sell a product, but you, you evangelize a belief system, I think. Can you explain a little bit about the company and what they do and just to provide us the context as well, the solution, the problem they are solving? Yeah. You know, I talked about this as a belief system because I think literally everything underneath us has changed. The foundational technologies in which we actually bring products to market and, and we run our businesses has all changed. In fact, I'm, I'm actually, a, a, again, I, I keep using the word belief today, Armin. I don't know what's going on. Like, I'm a believer that there's, I don't think there's a such thing as an analog business anymore. I think everything is digital. Like, everything is data. Everything is digital. And so, but if you, if you take and look at what's happened over the past couple of years, our entire, like, the infrastructure at which we actually go and bring our applications and our services and our products to market has changed. All of it. Um, and as people kind of shift to the cloud and, you know, cloud is being the way to consume, you know, software and services and build businesses. Honestly, it's not just tech anymore. We're all tech companies almost, you know, the, the way that which we, we do these things has, 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 has changed. And there's been this fundamental change. And unfortunately, the database is, is amazing technologies. Our lives run on it, like, you know, our healthcare, our nuclear codes, our, our financial systems are all run on these relational databases that are 30 years old. And unfortunately, they were architected for a very different world. And so at Cockroach Labs, what we're doing is we're really kind of reimagining what it means to be a database in this kind of world of distributed systems, in this new paradigm, in this in, in the world that is cloud native. What does that got to look like? Let's not mire and be be lost in the past, but let's really kind of reimagine and rethink what it means to be a database in this new world so that you know we can be ubiquitous. We can scale to meet the needs of customers all over the planet. We can eliminate things like downtime, you know, like I, that shouldn't be a thing that we have. Like the cloud promises scale, right? The, and always on. The cloud also promises efficiencies. And so for us, how do we automate as much of the database as possible so we can do these things? And, and that's what we've done. And so the relational database uh, needs to change. And, and that's what we're doing here at, at Cockroach Labs. How do you differentiate this with, for example, some other solutions like a Snowflake and others in the market. Sure. Yeah. So you look at you know Snowflake has already kind of been through this 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 vortex a little bit because what they're doing is they're they're doing something and they're reimagining what it means to do business analytics in the cloud. There's two types of database really. There's two markets, or there always has been. There's OLTP, which is like transactions and operational workloads. That's the world that we live. And then there's analytics and processing, you know, OLAP, and, and that's where Snowflake is living. And I think Snowflake has done a great job about moving the world into this kind of cloud-based systems and, and thinking about analytics in that way. It's a lot easier to do that side because we're talking about like a single data center. It's kind of like a contained problem. Your transactions are everywhere, Armin. Like I can't control where my customers live anymore. And 
the ubiquity and the the problem with transactional workloads about the consistency of data. Like if somebody is is interacting with you in New York and Singapore at the same time and there's a conflict, you know, who wins in that situation? Those are really, really difficult problems to solve because we're dealing with scale at a level where the the physical limits of our world are starting to to challenge our software. Like we're dealing with the speed of light. And so to move things into the cloud on the on the transactional side of the world, it's it's a it's a significant problem to to solve. I'm not saying the analytical side was easy by any means. It's contained to kind of a smaller problem space, I feel. And and remember, if you're dealing with transactions like it's a financial ledger, you can't be wrong. Dude. I mean, we're talking about money, or we're talking about lives. Like and so the 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 importance of kind of their relational database and how that actually feeds our lives is is one of these things. So it, it's a it's a great parallel though. Like what they've done on the analytics side is kind of where we're going on the on the transactional side. Yeah, as, as you mentioned, a lot of characteristics like in your world in transactional data, like consistency of data, be able to roll back, still you know having that consistency and everything. It's just totally different world of transactional data versus other players that are focusing on more getting the data out rather than getting the data in. And they are more on the analytics side and very understandable. And uh, to be honest with you, you're right. I mean, that's the bottleneck because everything has to be by nature kind of central, but in order to be a scalable, you want to make it decentralized. So that's the kind of challenge that you have, how to scale it while still things can be very consistent, like act like it is central, but scale like a decentralized system. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think about like what, I mean, this is the SaaS podcast. So think about somebody who's offering a service to people in a SaaS model. You know, look at like, I can go out and build like, I don't know, maybe it's like an app to help teachers do something or like curriculum or something like that. And I'm going to have teachers all over the planet. I've got to be able to, you know, provision a service to them no matter where they are. And they need to be able to access that no matter where they are. And there's credentials for each teacher and they're everywhere. And like, what am I going to maintain that within each single repository for each kind of instance that I have? Or am I going to create like this, this backend transactional system, you know, that, that has all the customer information. It understands all the interactions across all my customers. You know, it allows you to basically do billing and rating across all of them. And like that, that, that kind of that metadata layer that, that like is driving, you know, like, like those systems, that's the kind of problem that we're solving. And when we talk to people who are, you know, deploying, you know, SaaS type applications, that's how they're using Cockroach because it is there. It's a single logical database. It's going to span the entire planet. Like, I can deploy in multiple different regions. It's great for that use case because we can be there when they need to be there and, and wherever they need to be. Gaming companies is another really good example because like, oh gosh, gamers are everywhere. Again, they need like, what, what's the login information for that person? How many times do they come? What is, what is their game presence when they come back in and out? Same type of problem. It is really kind of a problem of the, not my data, that's my application, but the metadata around that, that's my business. And I, that that's definitely one of the areas where where you know CockroachDB is being used by a lot of SaaS companies to do that right now. Is it the right assumption to say the product has been created for the cloud age? It's cloud native, therefore it's fairly new. It should be it's it's serverless probably. I don't know, but 
either microservices, those kind of cloud native architecture hasn't been around for many, many years. It cannot be, for example, 10 years old architecturally. It should be six years old. Is it correct or it's a different kind of way? That is a great question. And when I look at the technologies that are going to matter in the next five to 10 years, Armand, I like to look into the past. I, I like to look at history. What's happening right now is we're, we're all living in the Google world. That's where we're all going. We are in the, the advent of Google infrastructure for everyone else. I worked for a guy by the name of Alex Polvi at this company called Corossi. He came up with it. It was called Giphy, which actually makes a whole lot of sense. Like, If you look at what Google has done over the past 15 years in terms of scaling a system like it, and being everywhere and ubiquitous, that's cloud native. You know, We talk about cloud native technologies. And the concept of Kubernetes will come up a lot with people. It's a very hot technology. It's that kind of the back end. Well, that's direct descendant of what, what Google runs. They call it Borg. If you're a Star Trek fan, you know what the Borg is, right? Like it's just all encompassing, uh, all the servers run on one thing, right? And that's kind of, Kubernetes is kind of offset of that, inspired by that. You know, for us at Cockroach Labs, we are inspired by the database they built. That was the relational database that scaled the planet, you know, for, for global infrastructure. And that, you know, and that's cloud native. And that's something they, they offer today. It's called Google Cloud Spanner. It's an amazing architecture. We were inspired by that. In fact, our three founders were in the employee, you know, 300 range, all three of them at Google. And when they left, they were frustrated. They didn't have the tools they had at Google. And so when I look at the technologies that are kind of changing the face of this this, this, this infrastructure, moving people towards cloud native, I look at a lot of the stuff that, that came out of Google. And, and this is, you know, what we're doing at Hackockroach is direct descendant. Now, we've been building for seven, almost eight years. But we're inspired by an architecture that is rooted in, actually deep, deeply rooted in, in being cloud native. And so this is truly a cloud native database. Like It isn't like, let's take something and change it to make it cloud native. We aren't doing that. We, let's reimagine, let's rebuild from the ground up to be cloud native. And I think that's the technology that's going to survive. That's the, the solutions that's going to allow people to actually take advantage of the cloud. It's when you reimagine, re-architect, and rebuild to be cloud native from the ground up. This is what makes me the believer, dude. This, this is not a paradigm shift of like take something and lift and shift or move and improve. It's re-architect and rebuild. And I, I'm, I'm definitely a believer in that. And that's what we're doing, but we're doing it with a relational database. Yeah, no, that's very correct because this is a very architectural change. It's not a feature. So features, you can't just, you know, add it in three months, six months, one year to the product. When it comes to architectural change, it's like you have built a high school, not easy to change it to a hotel. It's just designed to be a high school, right? So, I mean, you can, but it's not going to be the best hotel in the town at any time, right? So if you want the best hotel in the town, you have to build it as a hotel. This is really the same kind of, you know, architectural decisions that many times you have to build, you have to make from the get-go and the product will be built upon that. And then that's you know, who the product is. And that's part of the DNA forever. And you're absolutely right. So if, you know, somebody wants to really build based on cloud native and all of the kind of, you know, the promises that comes with it and the new technology, it's just the architectural decision is, is definitely something that has to be built for it from the ground. Now, going to a topic that definitely is relevant to you, is near and dear to my heart, is the fact that product evangelist, your role, product management and sales, the other side, but you are very experienced on the product management. You are a technologist. 
So you have done all of these. I would love to ask you about your take on how the in the new age, in the SaaS world, these SaaS companies should look at product marketing. Should they look at product marketing the same way we looked at it 10, 15 years ago? Or we should just change our mindset and look at product marketing and evangelizing our products differently? Yeah, that's the million dollar question around like, how does it work within each organization? And, you know, the, the fingerprint of each organization is going to define how product marketing fits within it. And if, I've, I've spoken about this a couple of times, you know, because I think like, look at in some way, it really comes down to the people. Like this is a people question. Like if I have people in product who really understand pricing, I am happy to give them pricing. But if I have people in product that don't understand pricing, I feel very clearly this is like a very direct kind of sales engagement type of thing. Like I don't want to give it to RevOps. I don't want to give it to the revenue team because they're just going to make it beneficial for themselves. Like there needs to be checks and balances. It's a good example of something where like pricing is such a good example because like people feel very attached to it. But it really comes down to the people that you hire and the resources you have within your team about where it fits because product marketing to me is is glue. You know, there's there's this, this product thing that sits over here and there's a sales team over here and there's all these craggy rocks that are sticking out of it, you know, it, it should fit into all those things and create kind of a smooth layer. That's a translation between, you know, the tech and the product over into the, the sales and the revenue side. Because look at man, in any organization, you do one of two things in a company. Every company, you do one of two things. You build things or you sell things. That's it. That's all companies do. And the closer, somebody told me a long time ago, the closer you are to one of those two goalposts, the better off. I actually, I'm a believer in that. If you can actually translate the build into sales, that's extremely powerful. And that's the game. That's to me what product marketing does. And if we can do that and we can actually help salespeople, it means, well, we're also helping, you know, the pipeline development, which is basically, okay, am I consuming, am I helping, you know, just broad consumers understand what we do? That's, that's, that's the trick. Can you, can you take something that's difficult to understand or doesn't really have a story and apply some sort of story to that and show the value, demonstrate the value, but more importantly, show people they want to buy from you because, you know, it's a, it's like a belief, right? Like this, this whole thing. That's really what the role of product marketing is. I mean, again, it's like the story is the strategy. We're conduit and we actually help define what that strategy is. It's not an easy job. I don't think it's easy to find uh, great product marketers. However, there's characteristics of great product marketers that are out there. And, and when I think about a great product marketer, there's a couple things that I look for. Number one, they have to be a change agent. They, they have to be able to understand things to a point and believe in them that people want to follow them. Really, really critical. Like the intelligence level is actually really, really a big deal because you got to understand really deep technical things, but you got to understand people on the other side too. So you know how they're going to consume because the audience is so important. That's a really difficult thing to do. But I think the most important trait of any product marketer, humility. You're not right. You're not right. You're never right. You know, and, and you, as much as you know, you're right. You're a believer. The humility to actually understand and take things in and, and be able to, to kind of move with, with the way. That, that's a tough one. That's a really, really tough one because, like I said, we're believers. But like this, this humble belief system is, is one of those things. That's, it's almost like you got to be like a some like Tibetan monk to do the job, I think, sometimes. I, and by the way, anybody who knows me knows I'm definitely not a Tibetan. They're going to laugh right now because I'm like the furthest thing from a Tibetan monk. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> we are entering into this world that things are getting serverless and there are many benefits to it, right? So economic reasons, environmental reasons, we cannot keep servers on all the time. That is very kind of yesterday and uh, we cannot do it for a variety of reasons, uh, scaling, economics, environment. But at the same time, we have this database by nature needs to be always on at the same time because, you know, the storage part is fine, the process part. And then at the same time, you cannot, you know, there are some challenges if you, if you turn it off completely and then people come in and using it. And then, so how do you see all of these kind of the stage of this technology? Because in reality, Cost is one factor. The the cold start problem or uh, something like that is is another issue. The all of the distributed kind of systems that we have. I mean, I'm asking you if you think we are kind of figured out for by most part. You know, for most part, we have figured out these kind of challenges. We are kind of in the path that we are just fine tuning things, and the major issues are are kind of resolved and we are on the right path to just fine tune, polish everything and get it done. Or we are more in the first 50% still in that territory that we are, you know, as we are implementing and, you know, distributing these systems we are building, we are kind of still experiencing some of these challenges and we need to overcome and we are not in the last kind of polishing side. Listen, until about, I would say eight or nine months ago, I wasn't really a believer in this whole concept of serverless. I was like, yeah, I don't really get it. And, and really, I've really come a long way in, in the last couple of months because, you know, you're right, Armand, is there's two sides of this. There's the, the financial understanding of what serverless can do for us, right? Like, I really think that people want consumption-based pricing. And that's what serverless allows us to do. Like, I only want to pay for what I use. And so how do we actually apply those concepts to software? Well you know, you've got to get really good at not, you know, your your own cost of goods sold has to get come down, right? And so your COGS has got to come down so that you aren't getting killed, like, because they only want to pay for what they want to use. Like your, your customers, that's what they want to do. And I really believe that serverless is a path to that. And I, and I really think it's a very interesting um, moment in time, because if you look at the legacy vendors who are out there, they cannot apply these principles to what they do. They can't cannibalize their business. It's a different business model. Like it's really difficult when you've been in business for 10 or 12 or even 30 years. I mean, Jesus, like changing that's really, really difficult. And I think it's going to, it's going to lead to some further disruption across several different categories. I really do believe the service model will do that. Now that's the, that's the business side because I think it's a, it's a cost benefit kind of thing. I think we are literally in the first like, 20% 20% or 20 yards down the field or whatever you want to call that in understanding how to do the serverless thing. I really do. Like, I think we have a, there's an established pattern of like, okay, how can you scale ephemeral compute rather than, you know, static storage? We're doing that in our database. Like we have a serverless database. I've learned a whole lot about that over the past, like, you know, eight months from some really smart people as an industry. Oh man. What, like, should we have a serverless CRM? Yeah. Like, that's going to make it a lot cheaper. It's going to make it ubiquitous. Like, should we have a serverless ERP? Yeah. Like, we're going to have to take the serverless concepts of these, like, instant starts. Like, you're just talking about, like, uh, you know, scaling down so I don't get charged is another thing. Like, the, the, the this consumption-based pricing. How do I rate and bill people? 
um, how do I make things multi-tenant and, you know, avoid, you know, the, the noisy neighbor problem. Like there's, there's, there's a lot of like technical challenges that, you know, we simply as technology is have, have not really sorted out yet. I think we're applying the principles to different things, but if you look at, you know, the concepts of serverless right now, the large majority of people that think of serverless, they think of like serverless functions like this, a company like Netlify and Vercel and AWS Lambda. It's, it's a very technical like development thing. We haven't moved the principles up the stack. And, and I think moving that up the stack is going to show us a, a lot of challenges in terms of how you do things like what does backup and restore look like in this new world? How do we integrate with other systems in this new world? And, and so I really think we are just started to scratch the surface on what this means technically for a lot of companies. But I'm absolutely a believer because I think it, there's a different cost benefit ratio in this in this new world. And I think serverless is it's going to be interesting. I, I would like to call it infrastructureless, but I think that boat has sailed. So I've definitely become a believer, and I'm very interested to see where this goes. You know, you know how do you think about the kind of serverless, and then helping us to essentially scale better and use the resources in a more optimized way do you think that from server's point of view and hardware and adding all of these computers every day i don't know i don't have the numbers but i i have to believe that every single day we are adding a lot of billions of dollars in spend let's just say right like crazy and yeah is it even sustainable even if you do do that i mean do you think that at this time it's the key essentially to address that or is it sustainable or you think you know uh, that that's not what would be the most driving part for true what is that number one driver behind this serverless because the way i personally think it comes to my mind is just we cannot sustain this ratio of adding hardware adding hardware computer servers and also the environment in these two kind of things just just we cannot retain that kind of you know adding is it anything else from your perspective that is the main driver or maybe the force? Yeah, I mean, for certain, it's definitely like, you know, how do you keep, how do you, do you just keep throwing hardware at a problem? That's not solving it, you know? And I think what we're trying to do as we, as we all kind of become more cloud native is how do I do more with less? How do I efficiently automate things so that I don't have to deal with the mundane tasks anymore? That's a big concept in, in, in cloud native. And I think this move towards cloud native gets us closer and closer to that. So that, you know, serverless, when I think when I see it applied to certain things, how do we automate things out that people don't want to deal with? Hardware is definitely a problem. I think the environment's a problem, but those are definitely two that are really, really important. I think the biggest problem that we have right now is we can't hire people fast enough. We don't have enough people to do the things. We just don't have it like, and, and this infrastructure is complex and this cloud native world is new and it's, we just don't have a whole lot of people get it. And so how do you, how do you do that? And, and so we're looking at the technologies to start to automate these things. I mean, the whole concept of like, you know, in the cloud native world, there's this thing called an SRE, a systems reliability engineer, which basically came from like, you know, the sysadmin or the DevOps role where, you know, it's no longer like, Hey, I'm just kind of looking at a warning screen and when something happens, I do things. No, we're create like system reliability engineers. They think about like downtime. What does it mean to the business? And like, they, they have taken a different approach because it's about automating things so that I can get extremely efficient. Like we're automating tasks that once took like a day to do into like 10 lines of a YAML file. And it's like, it's, it's amazing the stuff that we can do with automation. 
and I think our systems and and the way we think about things are getting a lot better because I I really do think that the I think hardware is definitely one of those things for sure. I mean, I I agree with you for sure. I think the biggest challenge is going to be people. I, I think it's going to be resources. And so uh, this this world of serverless promises a level of automation. The world of cloud native promises a level of automation that helps us address the the, the lack of skilled professionals who can actually manage and deal with this infrastructure. Those those the, the people who can really do this stuff. Dude, they're getting hired for like huge, massive contracts at these, you know, the big internet companies. Like, what do I do if I'm, you know, a small regional insurer in the Midwest? You know, it's hard to get those people. And so, like, I think it's on it's on the ISVs, it's on the cloud providers to automate and make things as simple as possible. So I think that's really what's going to make the change happen. So, so we talked about the characteristic of um, modern. OATP database, one aspect of it is, is serverless cloud native new architecture. But really what else is going to do that the old kind of, you know, the old system didn't do? Is it by nature the same thing? It's just going to scale better, it's going to, you know, be more, you know, running distributed, or it's going to be really things that this new OATP new architecture does that in the old one couldn't do. Yeah. When you start to think of things in distributed systems, the the value, the business value that you can actually bring to an application starts to change. And and it really comes back to like, you know, I talk to a lot of salespeople. I try to help them understand like, what does distributed systems mean? And what does this new cloud native world mean? And it's basically in the old world, what we thought of was like the the logical application or the logical data like i thought about tables and relationships and or i thought about my application needs to do x and then y and then z and all these things the 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 issue in the modern world is you have to overlay the physical model of data where does data live or where is your application running in in the world where you know you have this ubiquitous and global scale where things are gets really really important that's the paradigm shift that once people get through that they're like oh, I start to see some things that I can do that are different. For instance, you know, a relational database is interesting. How do you make things really fast for users all over the planet? Well, I have an instance that's running in Singapore. I have an instance that's running in somewhere in Europe, an instance in the United States. There are three separate instances. Why am I doing that as three separate things? Why don't I just have one database that's spanning all those places? Well, because, oh, the data can't live in one place. And what if the person's in Singapore, they got to go to Germany to get the data? I'm dealing with the speed of light, right? We're dealing with physics now. You know, our team wanted to address that. And so what they found out is like, how do I tie data to a location? And so that's kind of interesting. Okay, right. I could have, you know, Armand, your your data is going to run on a sub-server in Oregon, AWS West, whatever. So you have really fast interaction with that. Well, let's let's take that to the next level. What does it mean for like, say, a data privacy and regulation point of view? What if I can just say, hey, look at, let the database deal with, you know, look at all the data for German customers leaves to live on German servers. That's pretty cool, right? Like, because now I can start to deal with like data privacy type things. And so I think we're just starting to learn some of these things uh, in terms of the value of like how I think about the location of data. Another good example is like, maybe I'm like a, a government entity and I have different servers with different security levels and different like, security constructs applied to them. Again, that's a location of data. Do I have one logical database where 
I can segment data based on, you know, the confidentiality level of that server, you know, so top secret stuff only lives on these servers. We were doing that manually in the past. This is all stuff that we've done manually. It's best practices. It's, you know, error prone application code. Let's get out of that world. Let's let the infrastructure layer start to deal with things like that. Let's let it deal with, you know, the automation of, of dealing with those things. And, and I think we'll start to see, you know, net new capabilities. Like, you know, like if the location of data is important, maybe I'm a, a, I don't know, a code repository. And, you know, my coders are all over the planet. And you know what? Like the team that's working on this project, that code lives on servers that's very close to them because they're, you know what I mean? So like there, there's advanced features that we can think about in lots of different software that we have, you know, give us any software, a CRM. Like there, there's things that we can do that we just haven't even scratch the surface on yet because i think this the advent of cloud native the advent of understanding what true ubiquity is going to mean for us in the in the in this world we we just haven't gone through that yet i have ideas you know but i like working at the database layer because it 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 affects a lot of them it, it really does to me i think the 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 interface between the infrastructure and and people and applications is the database to me, this is why I love this space. Um, I, I love working in databases because it's uh, it is every it is, you know it's like every application is nothing other than a translation layer between a database and an end user. It's a fun place to be. And and you mentioned automation, right? So the automation aspect it's a big differentiator here because you can probably in this architecture you can also use the algorithms closer to the database. And in the old days. You know, we had to pick between, you know, managing the data in a programming language or managing the data in a database with a database language like SQL or something. And then there has been a very, maybe not Chinese wall, but a big wall <laughs> in between these two. So you go between a kind of database world and programming world. And each one of them had some pluses and minuses because one didn't offer the flexibility. Maybe you couldn't write that kind of algorithm the way you want it. And the other one didn't give you the, the the performance and what you wanted to get out of the data. So I think this might be a new opportunity to really get the best of both worlds and having more algorithms built in into the data, right? Wait until we start applying kind of AI and ML inside the database, not the things that are going on outside the database. Like, that's cool. Like, Oh my God, like the, the advent of this, this world of artificial intelligence. I mean, there's some really cool things that are happening. There's some scary things too, by the way. I'm, not, I'm, I'm the first to say that, but wait until we start doing it within the database itself as a foundational kind of, you know, component of our applications. I think there's going to be some really interesting things that are going to happen in the next couple of years. Also, you mentioned decentralization and the way it's distributed system that we have. When this, I hear this, it just reminds me of everything that goes to that direction, right? So almost financial system is getting more distributed, right? So we, we look at that part. Almost anything that is not, is, is more decentralized and distributed, it seems to be more powerful, more scalable, and much better to manage. So energy, the, the modern energy, renewable energy is more distributed, rather than the old-fashioned fossil fuel energy that is very concentrated and is always problematic when, you know, just 1% of the world has 99% of the energy and then just distribution of it, just anything about it, it's going to be problematic. While when it's distributed system, then it's 
it's much better, it works better, it scales better. Uh, again, the banking system is hopefully moving toward that direction, the financial system, the everything that I can imagine from energy, from agriculture, from many other things. We are just distributing and democratizing the world by distributing it. So database is probably the other aspect because the processing, the data itself, the kind of the way cloud cloud is working as a super delivery mechanism that can facilitate that uh, is aligned with the same trend that we see everywhere else. Yeah. And I'll give you another layer of this. Absolutely. I mean, the database has to go this way. I think all our applications have to go this way. I, Like I said, again, I'm an evangelist. I'm a believer. I'm a preacher in this world, right? So I, I totally am a believer. I'll give you another layer that's actually kind of, it's fascinating. I'm sorry, but like, this is just incredible that this is happening at the same time. Think about us as humans. Like, not only is our technology becoming distributed, but look at what this pandemic has done to us from a sociological point of view. It has made us, you and I, our distributed systems now. Like, I work with people I've never met before, dude. Like, and and that wasn't happening at this company before. You know, you kind of had to be in the local office. Like, we have become distributed systems as humans, as families, as workplaces. And there's this really strange parallel that I just kind of realized, like, over the past, I had as great conversation with somebody I work with. I'm like, wow, that's really like, it's it's fascinating. This is such an interesting time because we are becoming distributed in our technology. We're becoming distributed as humans even more and more. We're becoming global and our tech is becoming global. It's quite interesting in my opinion. Yeah. And then organizations that have proven that they can actually work in a decentralized style and distributed manner they have been able to continue functioning well, regardless of this, you know, COVID era and the impacts. While if the systems that had to work very centralized way and did not have the ability to decentralize if needed, you know, they were impacted most. So definitely, again, that uh, shows the resilience and the scalability of decentralized system in any form of fashion. So, so that's definitely the case. Is there any particular topic that I have not covered and you would like to bring it up and discuss? Under- There's only one, dude. It's me. The only topic I, I don't like, literally, I forgot to bring my charger for my desk. I'm at like 5%. So that's the only topic I have. I'm sorry, Armand. Yeah, but like, no, this is a great conversation. I love this conversation, honestly. This is the stuff that's very near and dear to my heart. I love talking about this stuff. Okay. Any any particular book that you may want to recommend to our audience before you run out of battery? <laughs> you know, so it's funny you asked me this before, and I, it, like, there's one book that I've read like I don't know, like five times over the past like couple of years, and this comes back to like there's this color insights thing where people like understand their personalities. I'm a pretty like always on person. I, I have a lot of energy, and, and like there's one thing that's really helped me and calmed me, and 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 I think I've become a better kind of not just a student of life, but a worker and a, and a, and a person. And that's, you know, I've, I've really taken on meditation over the past couple of years. Actually, the CEO of Cockroach Lab is the one who really kind of inspired me to do this. He, I think he's still, I think he meditates twice a day. Uh, there's a book called How to Meditate by Pema Chodron that I just think is just a, a phenomenal study. If anybody's ever interested in figuring out like, oh, maybe I could do this, it, it, it's really great. It's P-E-M-A. C-H-O-D-R-O-N, and it's how to meditate. I think the world would be a better place if we all kind of figured out how to do that. 
Okay, fantastic. Thank you very much. It was a great discussion. Again, thank you very much, Jim, for joining me on this show. Thank you for having me, Armand. That was extremely enjoyable to me. Thank you, buddy. <laughs> Likewise. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to SaaS Scaled with Arman Ishragi. For show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode, go to sasscaled.com. If you're enjoying our show, give us a five-star review and share on LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe for any updates on future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y dot com.